At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. We actually opened the book with with uh, Marina, my co-author, with a story of her uh, in a cabinet meeting, no less, and President Obama expressing disappointment that she wasn't able to uh, move faster at the VA because she had been there for a little bit of time and uh, wasn't able to fundamentally get get some um, computer systems connected to each other so that they could identify veterans who were falling through the cracks. And she explains to him just kind of the details about some, some of the, the bureaucratic processes in the VA and, and how she needs more time to kind of work through them. And President Obama uh, listens and, and thoughtfully says, well, you know, could I record a video uh, telling uh, the employees at the VA that they have to approve this new, new process? And Marina thanked him and said, you know, Mr. President, thank you. I'll get back to you if that's necessary. But that's the opening epiphany that we uh, ended up with in the book was that it was up to Marina and her team to solve this. The, the, the leader of the free world, despite his, his best intentions, uh, and I'm a huge President Obama fan, but he was not going to be able to solve the, the VA bureaucracy. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Between elected officials and the constituents they represent lies the bureaucracy, a group of public sector employees responsible for implementation, administration, and regulation. Every government needs bureaucracy in order to function properly, but the term can have a negative connotation for some people. The multi-layered systems and processes that a bureaucracy puts in place make decision-making slow, and public opinion and input from the electorate is often not given much weight. In other words, bureaucracies don't have feelings, they have frameworks. Regardless of the industry, role, or team, in order to get things done and transform ideas into impact, you need to work with bureaucracy. Change doesn't happen just because the person in charge declares it should. Often the instigator of massive change turns out to be an everyday employee. And today, we're going to discuss how you or anyone can do just that, regardless of your role. With me today is Nick Sinai the author of Hack Your Bureaucracy, Get Things Done No Matter What Your Role on Any Team. Nick is also the former Deputy Chief Technology Officer for the United States during the Obama administration, and he's also a venture capitalist and adjunct faculty member at Harvard Kennedy School. He's going to share some really great insights on how you can be more efficient in your role, and the best part is it isn't just for government, but really for anyone in any role. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Brian. Great to be here. So before we jump into the book, um, which I mentioned came out in, in September, 
I want to talk a little bit about your your position. I mentioned you were a senior official within the Obama administration, uh, more specifically the the deputy chief technology officer, with a focus around open data. And in my career, I've I've worked with the Open Government Partnership a fair amount on global initiatives around open data. So we're always fascinated by um, by the way data gets looked at from a government perspective and a private sector perspective. And one of the things that I learned is that there's so much innovation happening within the private sector due to data coming from the public sector. And as I looked at your background, one of the common themes that I really saw was you seem to be looking to fuel innovation wherever you go. So when you look at open data, talk to me about some of the ways you see it driving innovation in both the public and private sectors. Yeah, the government has a long history of of opening up data and information for uh, public good to build public trust, but also to fuel innovation and, and entrepreneurship. Um, uh, so you can think classically of, of the statistical agencies and census, which is written into the Constitution. But uh, to take a little bit more modern example, think about uh, weather data uh, from uh, the National Weather Service and NOAA um, and how that is made, made available uh, to the public. Uh, and you have a multi-billion dollar economy of, of private sector services and apps and, and all kinds of things um, built on top of uh, weather data that the government is collecting with satellites and ground sensors and, and what have you. And um, so that's, that's one example. Another one, of course, would be the global positioning system, the GPS system, right? Uh, designed for, for national defense purposes, but, but has opened up and that is you know revolutionized the mobile industry right and so we all rely on on gps so with weather data and with with gps two great examples almost canonical examples of of large uh entrepreneurial ecosystems uh and multi-billion dollar companies built on open government data and the thinking was in the obama administration um, that we should continue to do this that is find important uh national uh information assets and make them more available, make them more structured, uh, more useful to to fuel all kinds of uh, innovation and, and entrepreneurship. You used two words there, but there's actually, what I've learned is there's so much behind those words, making it available and making it structured that with through the open government partnership, the availability, there's so many pieces of, um, uh, I want to say, compliant policy that that organizations have to adhere to to make it available right and to make it structured in a way that is usable it just it blew my mind to see but it was great and also to see the intentionality behind government looking at this data and saying it's only going to be valuable if we have it in this format um ingestible in this way so the private sector can latch on to it so i thought that type of intentionality was really really cool yeah, it was a it was a really interesting lesson for me. I spent uh, four years in the White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and and worked on on open data initiatives throughout that that time period. Uh, initially, we were probably more supply focused. That is, how do we get organized? How do we build data catalogs? How do we refresh data.gov, the kind of central uh, uh, data catalog uh, for the U.S. government, um, and and as time went on, we became more demand focused. That is, how do we engage with uh, both traditional and non-traditional users of, of government data to understand what's really valuable, how the data could be better cleaned up, how we could 
uh, uh, provide APIs uh, or, or other mechanisms to, to, to get them that, that data. And so that, that evolution was a really fun one. Uh, we did get a, a, a policy, a, a open data executive order uh, done in, I believe it was 20, 2013. Um, but really, you know, policy is only important in, in that if it's actually used. And so we, we embedded a number of, of really great presidential innovation fellows, a, a program to bring mid-career technologists and entrepreneurs into government um, into various agencies to work on, on open data. Um, and we also had a series of, of workshops and larger conferences we called Data Jams and Data Paloozas. And those were ways to bring in private sector entrepreneurs, academics, nonprofits, individual technologists, uh, and mix them with the subject matter experts deep inside the agencies who you know, may, may have been the steward of a really important uh, and valuable uh, um, database and, and see you know, what are the ways that they could uh, work together uh, and then ce- celebrate them so that both the entrepreneur and the data steward inside of government could become heroes. So I, I, can't, I can't go past hearing you say building out data jams and data paloozas and building these programs out for, for mid-career folks to kind of get them more engaged that's not something that government used to empirically think about, right? I can't tell, I mean, 10, maybe 15 years ago, you never would have seen a data palooza, right? Or a data jam. And I would have to imagine that some of those experiences that you had bringing those things to fruition were certainly catalysts to, to writing this book, right? Because from a bureaucracy standpoint, to get some of those things off the ground had to be really challenging, right? They, they were, and I, I learned from some of the best. I, uh, the three CTOs uh, that I, I worked under were Anish Chopra, Todd Park, and Megan Smith, uh, very charismatic, singular uh, individuals who just had great entrepreneurial energy. Um, and, and so part of it was uh, learning from people like them and, 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 and people that they uh, brought in into the, to the White House. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things where we had a bunch of stories from my tenure, but from, from all of my, my friends and colleagues, my co-author of the book, uh, she worked briefly, uh, uh, with me in the white house, uh, and, and came into government as a presidential innovation fellow, but her claim to fame was moving over to the VA at age 28 and, and helping transform the VA as the CTO. Um, and, and there's a bunch of her stories in the book too. So we, we just wanted to tell all these great, uh, stories and, you know, we, we had a bunch of failures, we had a bunch of screw ups. And so we wanted to put those in the book too. I think that's, that's, uh, ultimately more interesting and, and fun. Um, and so we, we organized it as a, as, as a book that would be very practical. Uh, so there's, there's over 50 tips on how to get stuff done in a, in a bureaucracy, in an organization. It could be public sector or private sector. And, and uh, we told some stories. And so the stories of data jams and data paloozas and, and other kind of hijinks that we get up to uh, are in the book. Speaking of tips, um, one, one tip I think some of the listeners would love to know, you use the word entrepreneurial. Um, and I don't think... And in today's government, there's absolutely people with entrepreneurial spirit within it. It's one of the reasons why the mindset of government, I think, is changing. But one of the most challenging things, in my view, is as a leader, how do I identify the people on my team that have that entrepreneurial spirit? So from a tip perspective, 
what advice would you give to some of the leaders within government to help them identify some of the people on their team that might be really wanting to raise their hand and say, hey, I can tackle this. I can I can make these challenges. I can move us forward in a way that we've never done before. How do you identify somebody with that type of entrepreneurial spirit? I think you have, you have to uh, give them opportunities to prove it. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we in, the, in the policy world, we would meet with a lot of people who would have a bunch of ideas for us. And we'd say, great, you know, uh, write us a one pager, uh, come back with not just a single company or, or university, but come back with a coalition, you know, uh, change the facts on the ground that will, will make it uh, uh, easier for the, for, the, for the president or the administration to, to react uh, and get the, the legislative or, or policy or initiative wins that you want. And so I think that this is true of a leader in government too, is uh, give your, your team opportunities to, to show that entrepreneurial uh, um, spirit. And that means you know, giving, giving them the room to try things, to experiment, to uh, actually do things. And yes, in large organizations, we, we want to clear things 10 ways from Sunday and we want to, we want to have very tight uh, comms control and, and all of those kinds of things, you know, message discipline and that kind of thing. Uh, but if you can frame things as, as experiments or first steps or pilots, I think sometimes that, that takes the temperature down and, and it lets uh, folks try things. One of our chapters is pilot is the password. And I think that was a lot of, a lot of what we... Um, did in government, Marina Nitza and I, um, she's my co-author, a lot of the things we talk about is, you know, how do you get started in, in, in a small way and start to build momentum? And the, the antibodies of an organization are just uh, uh, far, far less present. The other thing is, uh, um, look between the silos. You know, uh, oftentimes organizations get very focused on, on their core process their core business, their, their core mission, uh, but, but things fall down um, interstitially or between the silos. And that's a place where entrepreneurial talent can uh, investigate kind of the problem and, and, and come up with really creative solutions. Pilots are something we're definitely seeing becoming much more per- pervasive within the government space. And I think it's really led to some of the creation of the the software factors we're seeing, I, a couple episodes ago, I had Brian Kroger on, who was the one of the co-founders for Kessel Run within the U.S. Air Force, and I think they've really become a shining example of what you can do. Um, another group is um, within GSA, obviously the Technology Transformation Services Group. Um, they've also built out 18F, which I think has done really great things, especially within the state and local governments. But you're seeing so so much. Um, from an incubation standpoint or or a real want for younger generation people to get, I mean, you mentioned Marina being, was it 28, 29, leading the VA from a technology perspective. And we're seeing that more and more. And that spirit, I think, is carrying government forward. So fast forward a little bit, um, August of 2021, you helped co-found the U.S. Digital Corps within uh, GSA's TTS, which I mentioned. Um, talk to me a little bit about what was the ultimate vision that you had for this program? How did you feel success was going to be judged? Yeah, so I got to give a lot of credit to uh, my friend Charles Worthington, uh, who's the current um, CTO of the VA. And, and he and I and, and many, many other people in government 
have been talking about the fact that um, there just isn't the the younger generation uh, serving in in technology and IT roles in in the federal government. And I think he's got something like eight thousand IT workers at the at the VA, and less than one percent are under thirty. So, uh, yeah, it's 16 or 17 percent are over 60, uh, two thirds at least are, are over 40. Um, they're just uh, the, the demographics um, aren't, aren't that great uh, at the VA. And, and that's that's true. That's true of the entire uh, civilian federal uh, workforce. We just don't have a lot of under 30 uh, um, in in product and in design in, in technology. Uh, and that that I think can change. And so. Uh, um, in talking with a number of, of technology and, and other leaders in government, uh, I sensed an enthusiasm to, to uh, see if they could uh, get early career technologists uh, into government. And, uh, you know, ideas are kind of cheap. Uh, there's plenty of people who had this, had this idea, um, but it really was about uh, identifying um, entrepreneurs who could take this from an idea and make it a reality. And so I was, I was really pleased uh, to work with uh, Chris Kwong uh, and Caitlin Gandhi. So Chris is, is someone who had been a, a student of mine when he was an undergraduate at, at Harvard uh, and, and took my graduate level class on technology and innovation in government. Uh, and he went on to co-found um, Coding at Ford, which places tech talent into uh, government agencies for a summer. So he'd already been doing this, that is, recruiting um, college-age technologists and placing them in federal agencies. Um, so he had a lot of experience doing that and a lot of street cred, even though even though he's uh, still quite young, had been doing it long enough to uh, have a really good brand reputation of being able to attract diverse, talented technologists from across the country and being able to place them and have really good experiences in, in, in federal agencies for a summer. And uh, Caitlin Gandhi, who is the other co-founder, uh, she she came from Teach for America, and she she had um, uh, started as a teacher and then grown up in in uh, uh, Teach for America and was a VP of of talent analytics. And so she really understood uh, how to uh, build build programs and how to think about talent. And so the the two of them joined GSA and created this program office. And really, uh, a lot of credit goes to the Biden administration that took a chance on this idea. Uh, the first um, cohort, they got over a thousand uh, applicants from across the country and something like, uh, I think, 38 uh, fellows now. And these are two year technologists who spend two years in, in, in federal government. So they have, uh, I think, 38 of them across uh, uh, 13 uh, federal agencies. And they are currently gearing up for cohort number two, which uh, applications actually open uh, this month um, for your listeners. And uh, so anyone who's an early career in, in technology or, or, or uh, about to graduate college or, or, or graduate school ought to check it out, the U.S. Digital Core. Um, and the, that those will start um, in, in the summer of next year. And I'm, I'm really excited to continue to grow this program. Uh, the, the early indications are that uh, uh, people are excited to come in and serve uh, for government in, in, in kind of a cohort-based model. Where they where they kind of really are getting uh, that kind of peer support and and good technical placement, and the agencies are excited to attract uh, diverse, talented technologists from across the country. Uh, something that they 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 haven't always uh, done a great job at. 
I mentioned earlier that I think, and, and I was actually really fascinated to hear the statistic that you gave that like 1% or less than 1% of the um, employees within technology at the VA are, are younger than 30 because it feels like, obviously not enough, but it feels like there's a trend within government that some of these leadership positions are actually getting filled by um, people in their early 30s, right? It's it's no longer a CIO or a CTO that is in their their mid to late 50s, late in their career. It's somebody that is in their mid 30s and they're thinking a little bit differently and they're bringing viewpoints. And the other side of that is we're seeing kind of uh, almost deployments, right? Terms of service where people are coming in from the private sector, spending a few years within government in these, these SES or these leadership roles, helping to drive innovation. But the other piece of that, and this is kind of a segue into, into your book, is these leaders go back into the private sector and they're able to help drive innovation because they understand how to navigate or to steal one of your words, how to hack bureaucracy. Are you seeing these kind of changes, these, these kind of back and forth, if you will, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but these back and forth kind of helping to at least catalyze some innovation within government? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of, of what I call in the book is people flow. So can people flow into government and flow out of government? Um, and I think that's, that's, that's good for government. It's good for, for private industry. It's, it's, it's good for America, frankly. Um, and so we've done it in, in, in you know, a few small areas, uh, mostly in technology, but I think we can do it at greater scale. And, and so uh, just to give you one example, uh, uh, the talent function, we have all of these great uh, uh, um, people who, who have really uh, revolutionize what it means to think about HR and talent in corporate America, in big tech, in startups, and and so forth. And I think that's an area in 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 federal service where we could have uh, tours of duty and and have some uh, new experiences, skills, and energy come in and 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 pair with some of the talented HR and talent folks we've got inside of government. Uh, so I'm a big fan of of people flow, uh, bringing. Uh, folks in for these tours of duty, and, and sometimes they they uh, stay and, and continue on. Uh, Marina, um, I think, was only planning to do uh, uh, six months, and uh, she says I tricked her, um, and and uh, ultimately just got fascinated by the complexity, the scale, the mission, uh, the opportunity to help millions of veterans uh, very concretely, and so so she stayed. Uh, but I'm also a fan of of uh, the other side of people flow. Um, so my firm, Insight Partners, uh, participates in the Defense Ventures Program. And that is a program where active duty service members uh, and DOD civilian personnel spend uh, six weeks, uh, essentially an externship in a venture capital firm or a startup or a scale-up uh, company. And I think that's tremendously valuable. Uh, they come in and they see uh, uh, how these companies work, how they uh, go to market, how they build product, how they... Uh, make decisions, and then they go back to the Air Force or Space Force or Army or, or what have you uh, for, uh, you know, and continue on their career. And so they build relationships, they build context and vocabulary. And and I, um, all the Defense Ventures fellows that I've had the privilege of working with have said that it, it's, it's, it's really opened their eyes and, and, and changed kind of how they saw startups and the innovation economy. So I mentioned at the top of the show that um, your book is called 
hack your bureaucracy, get things done, no matter what role on any team. So just level with us. So what is in your, in your words, bureaucracy hacking? Yeah. Bureaucracy hacking is, is fundamentally this idea of being entrepreneurial inside of an organization and getting stuff done. Uh, um, even if you don't have a ton of resources or, or, um, you know, all the power, power on the org chart. And, and, you know, I think the best bureaucracy hackers are not only trying to get something done for themselves that is advanced their, their project, their initiative, their product launch, whatever it is, but that they're also, um, making changes, uh, uh, systemically. Um, and so we have a bunch in the book there about, you know, how do you, build teams? How do you pick up the pen and kind of change things for the better so that you're not only successful in the thing that you're trying to get done for your yourself, for your team uh, or your product or, or whatever you're working on, uh, your policy, it, it doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, how can you actually make changes that are going to uh, uh, be global for your organization? And and so the best bureaucracy hackers kind of have uh, both that, that um, you know, the concreteness of the particular project that they are advancing, but are, are willing to also think about how do they make changes uh, for the entire organization. When you were in government, I can imagine this was a challenge for you. I hear this all the time that as, as either technologists or people within line of business, there's contracts that go to procurement that, and I think you probably know where I'm going with this, they go to procurement and they're looking at a technology and they're saying, hey, I really need this in my organization, but be, through bureaucracy and through the, the, the process of, of government contracting, they could end up with a completely different technology that maybe isn't exactly what they need, but it's fit for purpose, right? So it doesn't hit the same outcomes they might've wanted or it doesn't have the same levers they can pull on um, during your time in government, was this something that you really challenged with? And have you seen this change or, or do you think there's any potential for this type of process to change for the better, right? Not, not just to support the private sector, but to support the people within public sector to get the technologies that they want in their hands faster. Yeah, I, I've certainly come across this, um, issue, both being inside of government and, and outside of government, uh, where I'm on the board of a number of software companies and work, work with a, a, a bunch of other ones uh, in entering and scaling in, in public sector. Um, and I do think that, you know, we have kind of um, outdated or, or cumbersome processes uh, and, and we make it harder on ourselves uh, to try, buy, integrate uh, um, great modern software uh, into government. And that's, that's something I, I believe pretty passionately. And I've, I've, I've seen how hard it can be both for on the inside, watching people try and uh, say, hey, this is an interesting tool. I want to acquire this. Um, and uh, also on the outside, um, watching commercial software companies try and, and enter and sell into the market. And, you know, you you put up um, you pointed out, Brian, that that part of this is, well, there's the requirements writing process and then there's the procurement process and that those don't always line up. So. Uh, the person making the decision on what you actually buy may not be the person who's who's the user, um, and of course, you know who's paying for it could be a, another part of the conversation. Uh, and so, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of trying to collapse those as much as possible. Um, and I'm optimistic we can. I mean, you, 
you talked about uh, Kessel Run, for example, and we actually have the founding Kessel Run and Brian Kroger and Enrique Odi in the book. Uh, but one of the things that they do is start to collapse some of those distinctions. Um, and so that they, they are buying the tools that they, in fact, are using to build and maintain software. So they're not writing requirements and somebody else is buying them for Kessel Run. Kessel Run basically says, hey, this, this is the software tool chain that we need. And we're going to do our own market research with our engineers and then go ahead and buy those. Uh, tools that we need. And if a tool doesn't work, then, you know, we'll swap it out for another one. And that's the the magic of software as a service uh, and kind of the way modern software works. Um, so I, I, I do think that these, this is possible to change. Uh, any acquisition official worth his or her salt will always say, oh, well, we have all the authorities we need. And that's true to a certain degree. Um, but we still have um, uh, kind of this this cumbersome process of the the person writing the requirements versus the person buying versus the person budgeting. It's too distributed, and and uh, you know those are that's a hard problem for any one person to to solve. But I, one of the ways to to do it is to is to just have uh, a smaller organization uh, that that's allowed to try a particular technology and show that they are delivering real mission value. And I think that's ultimately what, what um, at the end of the day, people care about is, are you helping veterans? Are you helping uh, airmen or, or soldiers? Are you helping students or, 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 or homeless or whatever? Whoever the mission is focused on, can you actually show some, some uh, uh, mission success? And you're able to, uh, um, I think, justify a lot more uh, uh, modern technology use that way than, than than kind of hey let's let's try and do all the uh, uh, requirements building. So it's not lost on me. Obviously, this book is coming out after the pandemic, and there are as we're talking around procurement, we saw so many. I guess I'll call them changes, but they were obviously um, temporary changes or temporary fixes through the process during the pandemic to fast track some of these technologies within the hands of people that needed them, especially for the, the remote work um, functions they were trying to facilitate. When we look at the bureaucracy that it took to, to shift those, um, those compliance measures through this process to get them fast tracked, do you think that is something that could potentially be sustainable to make a change, to, to keep if you want to call them like this, these wartime type of procurement policies, um, keep them in perpetuity. I hope so. Uh, um, you know, organizations learn through crisis, and uh, there will be some snapback. There will be some uh, of the hey, let's go back to the way we used to buy technology. Um, but I think for many organizations. Uh, they've changed pretty dramatically and they, they just are going to have a more distributed workforce or more of the workforce is going to work from home. And so how they're thinking about collaboration has, has fundamentally changed. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of, can you use a crisis constructively and can the organization actually learn something from it? So the, you know, these organizations weren't, um, built by nature, uh, men and women, um, kind of created the rules. And so if we've learned a better way to try and buy 
uh, technology um, uh, during the pandemic, then why don't we continue to use that? And so I, I'm I'm hopeful that organizations will uh, learn some lessons about uh, moving more quickly um, as they as they did during during the the pandemic. And look, there's plenty of um, mistakes and, and and other things that they learn learn too. Sometimes they would just try and brute force things and realize that that wasn't going to work. I think with some of the unemployment uh, uh, backlogs in the states, the first ideas that the states had were just to hire more more people to process claims for unemployment, and that didn't that didn't work out so well. They actually had to uh, tackle the problem and and figure out you know what was what was really the the root cause of of some of those backlogs. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I do think that, that uh, um, the pandemic has changed organizations and, and hopefully for the better. Your book kind of breaks down some of these into scenarios and, and tips into to how to navigate some of these things or how to hack into some of these things. I'm curious to know, as you're going throughout your career, were there moments that you kind of kept track of and said, you know what, I need to write a book and this is a moment that's going in here. And this is a moment that's going in here as you're, as you're going through your career. Yeah. There's, there's small, funny stories. I, I think in anyone's career that you're like, ah, oh, that would be funny in a book. And maybe that's just a, a ton of hubris. Uh, the president did come by my desk. Um, and I, it was like the, the one day that I'd gone home early there, there's, well, I got thrown out of the white house science fair, uh, for being a tourist rather than actually uh, helping, uh, so there, there's little things like that. We actually opened the book with with uh, Marina, my co-author, with a story of her um, uh, in a cabinet meeting, no less, and and President Obama expressing disappointment that she wasn't able to uh, move faster at the VA because she had been there for a little bit of time and uh, wasn't able to fundamentally. Uh, get get some um, computer systems connected to each other so that they could identify veterans who were falling through the cracks. And she explains to him uh, just uh, kind of the details about some some of the the bureaucratic processes in the VA and and how she needs more time to kind of work through them. And President Obama uh, listens and and thoughtfully says, "Well, you know, could I record a video?" Uh, telling uh, the employees at the VA that they have to approve this new new process, and Marina thanked him and said, "You know, Mr. President, thank you. I'll get back to you if that's necessary." But that's the opening epiphany that we uh, ended up with in the book was that um, it was up to Marina and her team to solve this. That the the leader of the free world, despite his his best intentions, uh, and I'm a huge President Obama fan. But he was not going to be able to solve the the VA bureaucracy. It was ultimately up to Marina and her colleagues to figure out, you know, how the VA really makes decisions, what was really stuck, uh, and then how to how to uh, get it unstuck. And so that's that was one of the stories that we we absolutely wanted to tell. Uh, but we also wanted to tell a story of lots of our friends. And so you'll 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 notice that there's there's lots of good stories at. Uh, yes, the federal, state, and local level, um, but there's also stories from Amazon and Google and and bureaucracies closer to home, like homeowners associations and, and PTAs and the like. That's that's fascinating. I can, I mean, any listeners out there that think they they had a bad day if their boss puts them on a spot in a meeting, imagine being in a cabinet meeting when the president 
of the United States looks at you and, and calls you out a little bit and you have to kind of defend your, your base. So that's, that's pretty impressive, um, yeah. for her to, to be able to navigate that conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she had a little bit of warning that is usually cabinet meetings are just the secretary, the, the, um, the veterans cabinet meeting was the secretary, the deputy secretary and the chief of staff. And because President Obama was dissatisfied with how things were going at the VA, uh, she was invited to this particular meeting. So she knew that she was being invited for this particular reason and, you know, had had thought about how she was going to explain this to the president of the United States. But it's still very surreal to to do that. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, Nick, I've, I've loved the time, loved the stories. I think there's so much to chew on in this book. And the thing that I think is fascinating, too, is it's not just about hacking the bureaucracy of government. It's, it's for anyone. I mean, you, you mentioned a couple other companies, right, like AWS and Google. There's so many large companies and sometimes even small companies that, that put up some type of bureaucratic wall that you have to navigate. And I think this book really does a great job of giving the the readers tips to um, really guide and get to the outcome that you're looking for. So I, I definitely recommend it. And before we go, um, I usually have my li- my guests give listeners their final thoughts, but um, you're welcome to give any final thoughts and a, a final tip perhaps to anybody listening that, that needs to navigate some type of bureaucracy that they're dealing with uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I really uh, appreciate the conversation. Uh, you know, we see bureaucracy as a neutral term, and most organizations have some bureaucratic element to them. That is, there's some decision-making process, some uh, uh, set of rules, uh, so forth. And so uh, this isn't just a, a book about government or for government. Uh, in fact, we wrote it for a broader business, business persona, uh, but we knew that a lot of the stories would also appeal to, to our friends uh, who, who have served or, or, or want to serve. Uh, you know, fundamentally, it's about um, understanding the problem space, uh, trying to understand your how your organization really works. Uh, when you're trying to make changes, you know, how do you pitch a solution? Uh, how do you start small and build momentum? Uh, and then it, this is really um, a team sport. So how do you how do you build build a team, uh, both uh, formally and informally? And then how do you make your change stick? Uh, and, and so I think those, the, the tactics all kind of fall into those themes, uh, in the book. And, and that's true, uh, whether you're at a nonprofit, you could be working at a university, you could be in a mid-sized corporation. I think there's something in here for, for everyone. And I, uh, um, hope people will, will check it out and tell me what they think. Again, the book is hack your bureaucracy, get things done, no matter what your role on any team. Uh, it came out in September and it's available uh, wherever wherever you can access books, including Amazon. So, Nick, thanks again for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Brian. It was a lot of fun. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. <laughs>